Hebrews chapter 7 today. We've been journeying through the book of Hebrews together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter study. We happen to be in chapter 7. Last week, we looked at some of verses 1 through 3. We didn't get as far as we wanted to, but we looked at some of the concepts there. Here's what's going on basically in chapter 7. The author of the book of Hebrews is wanting to give a more full picture of the person of Jesus Christ to his Jewish Christian audience. And so in chapter 7 now, he's employed a lot of different devices, devices and wanting to elevate the person and the identity and the work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 7 now, he's employing the type of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a Jebusite king who existed 2,000 years before Jesus Christ. He's incredibly mysterious. He's only mentioned three times in the Bible, once in the historical book of Genesis, once in a prophetic psalm, Psalm 110, and then once in a doctrinal book, the book of Hebrews. So very scantily mentioned in the Bible, but incredibly important as a type, a foreshadow, a picture, an illustration, a prophetic one of the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's the subject of chapter 7. As we get into it, we need to remind ourselves that the themes here and the ideas and even the way of thinking, even the, the thought processes going on from the author of Hebrews are very Jewish in nature, rich in Old Testament imagery. So therefore, for those of us who aren't real, don't have a real strong handle on the Old Testament, a lot of this stuff is going to be new, and we're just going to walk our way through it together. It's cool. We'll get it. But a lot of these concepts will be new, and we'll get it together. Don't worry about it. Uh, for those of us who are not Jews that sacrificed in the temple in the first century, raise your hand, okay, uh, it's hard for us to understand the potency of what is being said. It's really lost on the Western church. It's really lost on Gentiles altogether. It's really lost on those who didn't exist in the first century prior to 70 AD or before that. We don't understand the potency of what is being said here when the author, his main premise is that Jesus Christ and his ministry as high priest is better than the Levitical priesthood in their ministry to Israel. It's incredibly important. We'll try to unpack it. Let's ask the Lord for help. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us. We rejoice in your word because we find you in it. It reveals more of you to us. And we believe that your word is inerrant. We believe that it is infallible and that it is authoritative. We rejoice in the fact that it is living and it's active, able to go to the very depth of who we are. We're so thankful that your word is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness. And we want to be taught today. We want to be trained. We want to be corrected, even rebuked today, Lord, if there's anywhere that we're straying or in error. And so we ask that you'd help us now in two ways. Holy Spirit, Jesus said that you're the teacher of all things. Please help me to communicate your truths. I submit my mind and my mouth to you. I ask that everything that comes from them would be from you. We haven't come to hear the wisdom of man or from a man. We've come to hear from you, so Holy Spirit, come teach us. And then also, Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to receive all that you have for us and give us supernatural understanding, insight, discernment, and knowledge into your word and paint for us a more full and beautiful picture of the person of Jesus. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's start reading in verse one and see where it goes. It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, 
to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now, we begin to see this picture emerge of the person of Melchizedek, as mysterious as he is, as little information as we have about him, we see this picture begin to emerge that is analogous to the person in the ministry of Jesus Christ, that points toward to, is a picture of, a foreshadow of. And the first thing that's brought to mind by the author here is that Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and a king of peace. He gets king of righteousness from his name, Melchizedek, Melech, Sedek, Melech being the Hebrew word for king. Sedek can be translated righteousness. So he's seen as a king of righteousness in the Old Testament, existing 2,000 years before Jesus Christ, by nature of his name. And he is also known as the king of peace. The reason being, he was a king over Salem. It later be called Jerusalem. And Salem is a form of the word shalom, which means peace. And so he is called here in Hebrews 7, a king of righteousness and a king of peace. All that is to get us thinking about who Jesus is. Jesus is the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. We unpacked that to a certain degree last week. And really, the message from last week and this week go together. So if you weren't here last week, you need to get that. Go to the website or iTunes or the CD table or whatever. Get a copy of that. We unpacked that, but I'll remind us of a couple things. Jesus is the king of righteousness and peace. Therefore... The Christian ought to be seeking the reign of righteousness and the reign of peace in his or her life under the kingship of Jesus Christ. We want Jesus reigning in righteousness in our lives and reigning in peace. What does it mean for Jesus to reign in righteousness? Well, I think it means at least two things. There's more, but at least two. Number one, it speaks of the work of the cross, the finished work of the cross, Jesus' substitutionary death upon it, by which we are justified. Okay, we are justified before God when we appropriate the finished work of the cross by faith. What does it mean to be justified? Two things, really. It means to be declared not guilty, which is really good for those of us who know we're guilty. Anyone in that club? Now we know we're guilty, but Jesus paid the price He took the wrath, and so the price being paid, the wrath being poured out, the righteous standard being met, we could now be called not guilty before God. That's good. But if it was just not guilty, that's not the finished work of the cross, because that would just leave us morally neutral. God does more through the work of the cross. We are also declared righteous. It's not only that we're not guilty, but we're also right before God and have merit before God, not of our own, but of the person, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus in his life met the righteous standard of God. He satisfied the righteous standard of God. Jesus lived the perfect, perfect life because we couldn't. He died in atoning death so that we wouldn't. And what happens is when we appropriate the work of the cross to our lives by faith, then his perfect life is credited to our accounts. It's often called imputed righteousness. It's credited to our account. We get that from 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So part of the work of salvation is that we are made righteous before God according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our life is now hidden in his. His record becomes our record. 
His merit becomes our merit. His riches become our riches. His position becomes our position. We're seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. We've been declared innocent and righteous, and so therefore we are accepted, we have been adopted, and we are adored by God because of the work of the cross. And so what does it mean then? To let the king of righteousness reign in our lives? Well, one thing, it means to be free from condemnation. Because Jesus dealt with it at the cross. He dealt with all of it. Satan wants to get us weighed down with shame, with guilt, with condemnation. It's also a very effective tool of religion. We don't like Satan. Can I get a witness? And we're not real big on religion. You know what I'm saying? We're into the cross of Jesus Christ. And for him to rule in righteousness means that we accept the righteousness given to us. That means we accept the standing that we have before God. Romans 5.1, our standing before him is in grace. That we receive it and we believe it by faith. That God said, you're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're accepted. You're adored. It is finished and we receive it. And when the enemy comes along wanting to condemn, wanting to bring guilt and the weight of shame, we say no. We say no, I'm gonna let the king of righteousness rule in my life. I'm gonna accept his work of righteousness on my behalf by faith. I'm gonna go ahead and just be righteous. Okay, that's what it means to let him reign, to be free from condemnation, shame, and guilt. The other component of that, the flip side of that coin, is then how we live. He's a king, we wanna live rightly before him. We talked about this last week, again, get the message, but because we've been made righteous, we don't have to try to be righteous. Yeah. Understand this, this is fine. Religion says, try real hard to be righteous. Do some good things, try real hard at it, maybe something good will come from it. The cross of Jesus Christ in the gospel says, you have been made righteous, be who you are in Christ Jesus. Just be who we are in Christ Jesus. Let the life of Christ in you come out of you. Let the word be made flesh, so to speak. Let that new creation come forth and just live in the newness of life that was given to you by Jesus Christ. And see, life will be different. We'll live a different way. It'll be righteous living. That's what it means to let King Jesus rule in righteousness in our life. And what comes from righteousness is peace. It came from the righteous work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It comes from imputed righteousness. He's a king of righteousness and peace. And we've got to let him reign in our lives in peace. We've got to, in difficult times, receive by faith the peace that he has. He's a prince of peace, so he's got all the peace. He said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. My peace I give to you. And he's the one who sustains the universe. He's in total control, so he's in perfect peace. And he gives it to the Christian. Letting him reign in peace means when circumstances are scary, big, overwhelming, hard, anybody know what I'm talking about? That we just go ahead and abide in the peace that surpasses comprehension. We know that he's in control, that he's faithful, that he's good, that he's just, that he's right, that he's merciful, that he's holding on, and that we can hold on to him. And then I think we also realize that the two intersect in our lives. As I said a moment ago, righteousness comes from peace. So if you want peace in your life, be it relational peace, financial peace, whatever peace you're looking for, you want peace in your life, do the right thing according to Jesus Christ. This is pivotal. Because we're rebellious oftentimes. 
and we're wayward, and we do things that we shouldn't do. And, and then there's this lack of peace that comes into the Christian's life, and, and things are difficult, and things are fighting, and we're striving, and there's all this friction, and we're wondering, why is this? The reign of righteousness hasn't been ruling in your life, and so you're lacking peace. Do the right thing before God, and peace will overflow in your life. Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness and peace. Now, that's a little picture that the author of Hebrews was wanting to write to the Hebrew Christians because they were experiencing opposition. They knew tough times. Their religion had just been made religio illicita, illegal. And practicing it in the Roman Empire was punishable by death. They're now alienated from their former Jewish families and they're alienated from the Roman Empire and its citizens. They're the outcasts. They're the dissed and the oppressed and the marginalized. And the author wants them to know that Jesus is the king, that he's on the throne, that he's coming again, and that he will and he does rule in righteousness and in peace. And that transcends our drama. That transcends our difficulties. He's wanting to paint that picture for them. And I think he did a good job in the first couple verses. Now, here's the thing about the author of Hebrews. He's Jewish. And so he thinks like a first century Jew. He's also a Jewish scholar in the first century. So he thinks like a first century Jewish scholar. And here's the interesting thing about Jewish thought at the time as it pertained to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Bible. They saw as much significance in what was not said in the scriptures as what was said. To them, the silences of scripture were as profound as the statements of scripture. And a common interpretational method was to draw conclusion from what wasn't in the text as well as what was in the text. That's common Jewish thought at the time. Um, we often think differently. I think a, a, a common Christian mantra among Christian expositors is where the Bible is silent, we're silent. And that's generally a, a pretty good rule. But they approached it differently, they thought differently. And that thought process, at least in this instance, is ratified by the fact that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture. Amen? Amen. And so he's employing, we're going to see it in the next verse, he is employing that methodology of interpretation. That what Scripture doesn't say, at least in the case of Melchizedek, being a picture of Jesus Christ, is as profound as what it does say. What it did say was he was the king of righteousness, of, uh, king of righteousness and peace, and so is Jesus. Look what's not said in verse 3. It says here that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now, many have read this and they've thought that Melchizedek must have been a Christophany, an Old Testament pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ because it sounds like from that description, that he possesses eternality. And so they're thinking that it was actually Jesus Christ appearing in the flesh at a moment to Abraham. Last week in the message, if you weren't here, get it, I gave six reasons why that cannot be so. Why it wasn't a Christophany or a Theophany. Why he's actually a Jebusite king that lived 2,000 years before Jesus Christ, that God laid a hold of to paint a picture of Jesus Christ, that humanity might not miss the beauty of him. But here's what's going on. The book of Genesis is a book of genealogies. Anybody read it lately? It's got a truckload of genealogies in it, right? I mean, you come to those parts, you're like, boy, they, I mean, okay. Genealogies all throughout the book. And so to the author of Hebrews, it was profound to him that Melchizedek has no genealogy. 
He appears for three verses in Genesis 14, nothing about his origins and nothing about his life after him. And so what the author of Hebrews finds there is fodder to paint a picture of the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus actually possesses eternality. What is only literary of Melchizedek was literal of Jesus Christ because Melchizedek is just supposed to be a picture. But Jesus Christ is the fullness, or as Colossians says, the reality. Melchizedek was a shadow. Jesus is a reality. But Genesis gave us no information about his genealogy or his origins. And so he uses it to paint a picture here, reminding us that Jesus Christ is unique. He's unique. And that he was the pre-existent one. He is the pre-existent one. He's without beginning, he's without end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. All things were created by him and for him, and apart from him, there's nothing that exists. And so he's painting a picture of that in verse three. New Living Translation, which is a thought-for-thought translation, does a good job and says, there is no record of his father or his mother, so on and so forth. It's not that he was never born or didn't have a genealogy, he did. But for the literary purposes of the author, it's proving what is a literal truth, that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. You understand that? Amen. Now, verse four. It says, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Okay. It says here that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Okay, pretend you're a first century Jew or a Jew in any century. The name Abraham was like, ta I mean, that's ta just as big as it gets, the name of it, Abraham. I mean, they do call him Father Abraham, right? He's the patriarch. He's the father of the whole Jewish nation. Our God is called the God of Abraham and his kids, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I mean, in the Jewish mind, plot out, Abraham. Now, he says that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Throughout Scripture and throughout that culture, if someone tithed to another, they were believing that that other one that they were tithing to had superior office. He was in a superior position. He wasn't a superior in his person. All men are created equal before God. But he had a superior office. This is very important. Don't miss this. This denotes that Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, somehow saw Melchizedek as superior to himself. And so it says in verse 1, that when Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings, that Melchizedek blessed him. And in verse two, that Abraham tithed to him. And again in verse four, Abraham tithed to him. Here's the story. Genesis chapter 14. Abraham is dwelling in an area that we often call the Negev, the arid southern desert region of Israel. We have a map for you. See this big circle in the lower left-hand corner? The area of Hebron? That's where Abraham was at the time. And uh, throughout that land, throughout the Mediterranean there, you had a series of city-states, little towns that had kings over them. And these kings of these city-states were always going to war with one another, and Israel was going to war with them. We see a lot of them named in the book of Joshua and in Judges, so on and so forth. Abraham is down near the area of Hebron, just minding his own business. Who was Abraham's nephew? Lot. Thank you, Bible students. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham's nephew, Lot, was living where? Sodom. He's living in Sodom, which is a little ways from Abraham, but not too far. Here's what happens in Genesis 14. 
Four kings, Transjordan kings, kings from the other side of the Jordan get together. Okay, there's a, a conglomeration of kings. They get together and they invade from the northeast and they come southwest to the area where Sodom and Gomorrah was and a lot of other city-states. And they conquer the kings of that region and they carry off captives. Well, one of those captives was Lot, Abraham's nephew, along with Lot's family and all their stuff and all the other stuff. So these kings come down from the northeast, they conquer these kings in the southwest, and then they start to head back up with all the booty, all the plunder, all the treasure, all the stuff, and all these captives. Abraham says, I ain't having it. Abraham is a bad man, bad in the good sense. <laughs> Abraham says, I'm going after these kings. Are you kidding me? They're just going to come down here and open up a can and bail? No way, I'm going after him. We're told in Genesis 14 that Abraham gets 318 of the men from his household. He was very wealthy, a lot of cats in his house. He had 318 trained soldiers in his household. He got these 318 men, and they begin to pursue the confederation of nations and kings heading back toward the north. The arrow depicts the route there. They went all the way up the Jordan Valley there, all the way to the area called Dan above the Sea of Galilee, and all the way to Damascus, modern-day Syria. That far north into Damascus, there Abraham and his 318 bad dudes finally overtook the confederation of four kings and their armies, and there was a nighttime attack, and Abraham and his boys won. They beat the kings, they defeated them there up near Damascus. And so Abraham, on the heels of this great victory, takes all the stuff. That's what you do back in the day. You beat the kings, you take their stuff. And so he beat the kings, takes all their stuff, gets Lot back and his family. Here's where it comes together. Then he starts heading back down south. Comes back to the area of Negev, and that's where we pick it up in verse 17 of Genesis 14. We have it on the PowerPoint. It says, then after his return from the defeat of, I can't pronounce that guy's name, the name of some king, and the kings who are with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Abraham is coming back on the heels of this tremendous victory and all of his guys are carrying just as much stuff as they could carry and he's a hero right now. I mean, he's an absolute hero. He rescued the people and the stuff from four different kings and he comes back and the king of Sodom comes out and meets him in the king's valley and he's like, Abraham, you're the man. This is incredible. This is, this is awesome. And you can just imagine Abraham on his camel. Just dun, 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 dun. And then... All of a sudden, out of the shadows, seemingly from nowhere, comes Melchizedek, this mysterious cat. Look what it says in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Hmm. wonder what that's a picture of. <laughs> that's another sermon. Melchizedek brings, I mean, we could do it. No, no, there's no time. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, Right? Now, he was a priest of the Most High God. What did he do? It says in verse 19, And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of all. So Melchizedek, this shadowy figure, never before mentioned, comes out of Salem. The king of Sodom is there just going like, Abraham, you're awesome. And he comes up and he blesses Abraham. And Abraham says, Melchizedek, you're awesome. And he gives him a tenth, it says in verse 4, of his choicest spoils. The best of the loot. The best stuff that he had. 
in effect, saying, your office is superior to mine. I'm going to be the father of the Jewish nation. I don't know if you know, but God made me this awesome promise when I was, in 75, when I was 75 years old. It's killer. I'm going to be the father of the Jewish nation. I just opened up a can of four kings up north. But somehow, he intuitively realized that this Melchizedek was worthy of honor. And in that culture and in that time, when you tithe to another, it was showing honor. And if you were blessed by another, they blessed you because they were in a greater place. Now, I want you to notice, he intuitively knew that he was to bring something before Melchizedek. Please notice as Christians that what he brought was the choicest spoils, the very best of what he had. Melchizedek is an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ. Let me just say very simply, when we bring things to Jesus, it had better be our best. Church, it had better be our best. And you know, the church is in a bad habit of bringing leftovers. I've got a friend, he's here in this service, one of my best friends in the whole world. He doesn't deal with leftovers. He doesn't eat any leftovers. His wife is this amazing cook. I go to his house all the time to eat their leftovers. There's tons of them. It's like just boiling over in their fridge. But my friend, he's like, I don't do leftovers. Let me tell you something. Jesus doesn't do leftovers. The church is in a bad habit of thinking we could bring anything before the Lord. Second-rate worship. The leftovers of our finances. When the church has a gathering of things because we want to give to the orphans in Mexico as we do, or the orphans in Thailand, or the people, the uh, Hispanic population in the trailer park over here that's impoverished. When we say, hey, we want to collect things, what does the church generally do? They bring their junk. Well, I've got a Rams jacket from like 1983 that I haven't worn in 25 years. That'll be awesome. They'll love that. Oh, I got these shoes with holes in the toes, and uh, that'll be great. Yeah, I'll bring that to the church. That's a wrong attitude. That's a wrong attitude. Throughout Scripture, God's people were always supposed to bring their best before the Lord, and anything less was unacceptable. When they were to bring a sacrifice before the Lord, it had to be pure and spotless and without blemish or it was rejected. When they were to bring some of their agriculture before the Lord, it was to be the first fruits. Not let's harvest and see what we have left. Not the crushed stuff on the bottom. The very first fruit that came forward was to be presented before the Lord. That should be our attitudes. When it comes to worship, when it comes to service, when it comes to giving, we should bring our best before the Lord. Here's a little hint that I'll give you as a pastor. Your tithe check should be the first check that you write every month because a biblical concept is first fruits. If it's the last one that you write after you paid the mortgage and after you paid the car payment and the payment on the vacation house and the food bill and the new surfboard and the gas bill and the water bill and then, oh, I think I have something left for Jesus. At that point, forget it. No, honestly, forget it. Because what it is is a heart issue. You see, God doesn't need your money. I don't know if you realize that. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money. But he's incredibly concerned with your heart. And here's what I know about my heart and yours. It's wrapped around our wallet. Straight up. It's wrapped around our wallet and our stuff. So what does God do? Bring me the first. Bring me the best. And trust me for the rest. That is a principle. That is a principle. God says in Malachi chapter 3, 
Test me in this. It's the only time in the whole Bible that God says, test me. Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test when he was tempted by Satan. But God in Malachi 3 says, check me. Come on. Test me in this. Bring in the tithe and see if I don't open the storehouses of heaven and bless your socks off. God says, test me on this. I was a young Christian and I was being discipled by an older man and we were sitting in Esau's Cafe when it existed on Lower State Street in Santa Barbara. And uh, he was wanting to help me grow in the Lord. And so he said, are you tithing? I said, tum, tum, tum. <laughs> Surfing, I know, but tithing, what, what, is, what is this? Are you giving a tenth of your income to, to the Lord? Are, are, are you giving that to the Lord? <laughs> no. He said, go to Malachi chapter 3. And what did Malachi chapter 3? And before God says, test me now in this, he says to the nation of Israel, you're robbing me. And they say, how are we robbing you? And he says, in tithes and offerings, all of you are robbing me. And I read that, and he looked at me, and he across the table, he pointed his big old bony finger, and he said, you're robbing God. You're robbing God. Are you giving to the Lord? I said, I don't want to rob God. Yeah, I'm down to give to the Lord. I'll give you more. What's the principle? He said, the principle is first fruits. You give of what the first of what you have. When your paycheck comes in, you give it to the Lord. It's an issue of faith. And it's an issue of heart. And it's trusting the Lord. And he wants to be your provision. And he wants to be your king. And so he says, test me in this now. And I said, okay, okay, I get my paycheck. And then I'll write 10% to the Lord. Um, do I tithe on the net or the gross? I mean, I asked him that. He had the most awesome answer. He said, well, do you want to be blessed on the net or the gross? I said, okay. That's awesome, Lord. Praise the Lord. And I'll tell you, this is my personal testimony. God has never failed. I've been consistent to give to the Lord since that day. It's still the practice of my wife and I that the first fruits goes to the Lord and he has been incredibly faithful and he's opened up the storehouses of heaven and my heart burns for Christians that miss that. My heart burns for those of you that are missing that because your heart is wrapped around your wallet and you don't have faith to exercise that before the Lord. God doesn't need your money, but it's interesting that in the Bible, there's 500 verses on faith, 500 verses on prayer and 2,000 on money. Why? Because God is totally into money. No, because you're totally into money. That's why. And because it's totally wrapped around your heart, God wants your heart. So he deals with our money. If you think that this is a trite plea to get more money at reality, I invite you to never give money at reality. You had better tithe to the Lord. That's a Christian principle. You better do it. But don't do it here if you think that's what it is. We are overwhelmingly blessed. We have an abundance. If you think that's what that was, don't give here ever again. Give somewhere else, but please, in Jesus' name, be blessed. Be blessed. Now, Melchizedek. <laughs> Melchizedek. Okay, so the point is being teased out of the text that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, okay? Remember I told you that the main point of this chapter is that Jesus Christ and his priesthood are better than the Levitical priesthood. Here's where that begins to unfold. Verse five. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, okay, 
who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. He's simply saying here that it was a commandment in the Old Testament that all of Israel was to uh, tithe to the Levites. They were to tribe, you know, tribe, tithe to the priestly tribe. Okay, look what happens. Verse 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, speaking of Melchizedek, he predated the Levites, right? In fact, he was Levi's great-grandfather because when Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, Melchizedek, a contemporary of Abraham, predates them, so he's not from his lineage. The one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. That is Abraham. But without any dispute, in other words, this is a no-brainer, that the lesser is blessed by the greater. So it's understood in context in the Jewish mind that when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Melchizedek was seen to be of greater office and position. Okay, stick with me here. Verse 8, And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, speaking now of the Levitical priesthood, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives on. Here once again, we see the author of Hebrews making an argument from silence. The scriptures never tell us when Melchizedek died. And that's profound. We know when Aaron died, we know when Moses died. We knew when a whole lot of other priests died because we had to learn about their successors. But the scriptures never tell us of the death of Melchizedek. He's not saying that Melchizedek never died. He's not saying that. He's saying that in the fact that the Holy Spirit refuses to mention his death, there is a painting of the picture of the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, okay? And that no one ever succeeded Melchizedek in his office as priest. Therefore, it's unique, okay? Verse 9, trip out on this. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received, uh, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. This is a weird concept for you and I. What he just said was that when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, Levi and all the Levites, the priestly tribe, were also, also tithing to Melchizedek. They weren't even alive yet, right? Abraham, Isaac, Isaac hasn't come yet. Jacob, Jacob hasn't come yet. Levi and his 11 brothers, they haven't even come yet. It is a biblical concept that the descendant is contained in the ancestor, at least for theological reasons. We see God speaking this way in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, where he says to Rebekah, there are two nations in your womb. And there was just twins, <laughs> two nations. He's on Jacob in there. He called them nations. Okay, in the biblical mindset from the perspective of God, for certain theological reasons at certain times, the descendant is seen as contained in the ancestor. How does this intersect with our lives? Original sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 talks about the fact that we are guilty of sin because Adam sinned. And that we are all guilty and all have sinned because Adam sinned. Adam being our common ancestor, when he failed, that failure is passed on to us. The doctrine of original sin, which we affirm, the doctrine of original sin is tied up in this biblical idea that the descendant is contained in the ancestor. And that's what this Jewish scholar is appealing to when he says, look, 
In the loins of Abraham, so to speak, Levi was already there. And so when Abraham gave to Melchizedek, it was as though every priest that has ever existed in Israel was also recognizing that Melchizedek's office and priesthood was superior to theirs. And that is stinking profound in the Jewish mind. That is incredibly profound in the Jewish mind because the priesthood and their work of sacrifices was so important to them. Next verse. Verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, in other words, if we could be made okay, if the sin issue could be totally dealt with through what the Levitical priests did, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes a place uh, takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, speaking of Jesus, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is still clear. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What a mouthful. Let me break it down. He's simply saying that though the Levitical priesthood was ordained by God and instituted by God and useful for a time, there would come a time where God would change the law. The law instituted that Israel had to go to the Levitical priests for a covering for their sins. Notice it was just a covering for the sins. Just a covering for the sins. That's why the sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again. The law was you sin, you need to make a sacrifice, you need a mediator, and they are the Levitical priests of the family of Aaron. They are the representatives of man before God. The prophets represented God before man. The priests represented man before God. You've got to go through that mediator. What he's saying here is that there came a time where there was a change in the law, that God made a different provision for the Messiah. Why? Because the book of Ezekiel and Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would be a priest king. He would be both priest and king. Melchizedek was both priest and king, a foreshadow of that. That's absolutely unique in Israel because priests had to come from the tribe of Levi in the family of Aaron and kings had to come from the tribe of Judah in the family of David. Therefore, nobody could be both. In Israel, nobody could be both. It wasn't allowed by God. But Melchizedek, who predated Israel and the tribes of Israel and the Levitical priesthood, was both as ordained by God. Jesus Christ comes not as a Levitical priest who qualified because of their descendants. I'm in the right family. I'm in the right tribe. I can be a priest. But who qualified according to his own person as the son of God. Therefore, the author is saying, Jesus Christ is superior to the Levitical priests and their sacrifices. Why was this so important for them? it is almost lost on us. Because we haven't made those sacrifices, we're stoked with Jesus, don't really care. For them, it was everything. Listen, in the Jewish mindset and throughout Jewish history, and in this year when the temple was still standing, for Jews, the way that they coped with life 
was by interacting with the Levitical priests. Because they were just like you and I. They made bad mistakes. And when they made those mistakes, they experienced guilt, shame for some of them, condemnation, and the weight of those things. I don't know, I don't know if anybody can testify, but that's a heavy weight. That's hard to cope with. You see, the way that they coped with life is they were able to go with a sacrifice that they brought to those priests and say, will you sacrifice this to the Lord for me so that my sin might be covered so that I would not feel this way anymore? And that I might be able to approach God and worship God and commune God and be accepted by God? But you see, it was temporary. Because when they sinned again, they would have to sacrifice again. They knew what we never knew. They knew what it was like to spill the warm blood of an innocent animal because of their bad decisions. But that's the way that they always coped. Now they've become Christians. In the context of the book, now they've become Christians. They recognize that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. They become Christians, but it's not panning out how they thought. They've been alienated by the Jews. They're now being hunted by the Romans. It's become difficult to be a Christian. They're not able to cope. So what do they do? Just like us, let's go back to how we used to cope. Just like us. I'm not able to cope with this. This is too much to bear. This is too gnarly. Let's go back to the former things. That's what he's trying to prevent them from doing, is going back to the Levitical system by showing them that Jesus in his priesthood is superior to them in their priesthood. They're tempted to go back to what they knew, fall back on what they knew regarding how to cope in this life. Very much like you and I. Now, we all have various things that we hold on to to cope in this life. What he's telling them is very simple. All you need is Jesus. That's what he's telling them. For all your drama, for all your problems, for all your difficulties, for all the threats, for all the fear, for all the weight, for all the shame, for all the guilt, for all the pain, all you need is Jesus. The Bible declares it. I will not compromise on it. It's not Jesus and, Jesus plus a little, Jesus with some. It's just Jesus. That Jesus Christ is sufficient to meet all of our needs. That is an absolute truth, and he's pressing that upon them because they're going back to those old coping mechanisms. Now, don't you do that because we do that. It's different for all of us. For some of us, it's, you know, a few beers. It helps us to cope. I was like that before I came to Jesus, and now I came to Jesus, and I still, that still helps me to cope when I come home, and you don't know my job. You don't know my life, Pastor. Don't tell me about it. I need that to get by. For some of you, it's some recreational drug use. For some of you, it's pornography and sexual immorality. But you just need a release, and that's how you get it. You engage with the flesh and in the flesh in that immorality, and that helps you to cope with the pressure that is upon you. For some of you, it's self-righteousness. That's your coping mechanism, is that you've got people you positioned around yourself that you can look at and say, I'm better than them. I'm doing better than them. Therefore, I feel okay about myself. We've all got those coping things that we have a tendency to go back to. The application of the text for you and I is Jesus is sufficient. He is able to deal with whatever it is is troubling you. He is able, but there's a protocol. Look at the next verse, verse 18. 
For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Notice what he says in verse 18 that they needed to do with the Levitical priesthood. There was a setting aside of those things, of trying to be made righteous by obeying the law, the 613 commandments, good luck, of having to do those sacrifices over and over again. He says in verse 18, there comes a time when Messiah comes that there is a setting aside of those things. That Greek phrase, setting aside, means very simply to render inoperative. He's telling them, if you want to experience the fullness and the power of the person of Jesus Christ, then you need to render inoperative the old things. The old coping mechanisms, the old crutches, the old securities, the old things, you need to render them inoperative if you want to experience the power of the person of Jesus Christ in your life. Render them inoperative. God already did that for us on the cross. He rendered in his economy and in his eyes works as inoperative. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. He rendered them as inoperative. And then all those other crutches that we hold on to that help us cope. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God says, you don't need that anymore. I'll be your all in all. I'll be your everything. I'll be your center. I'll be your strength. I'll be the one who's closer than a brother. I'll be your best friend. I'll be your God and your king. I'll even be your warrior. I'll fight over you and I'll rejoice over you. I'll be these things for you. But what you need to do practically is render inoperative those other things that you're holding on to. Because just like the Hebrews couldn't have the feet in both camps, we can't do that. I mean, it would be so nonsensical for them to say, yeah, we trust Jesus as the Messiah and then run to the temple and slaughter some lambs. You're like, dude, what are you doing? You've got a theological problem there. And yet we do that all the time. Oh yeah, I trust Jesus, but I need a little bit of this. I need to do some of that. I need to hold on to this. I need to get more of those. Jesus is sufficient, brothers and sisters. Jesus is all we need. He can handle it. He can handle it. It says about those old things in light of Jesus in verse 18 that they were weak and useless. You know why the old covenant was weak and why the law and the Levitical priesthood was weak? I'll tell you why it was weak. Because through the law, nobody could be justified. It says that in Romans chapter 3. Through the law, no flesh shall be justified. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Through the law, no flesh shall be justified. You see, what the law did was tell us we're wrong. Mm, that's what it did. 613 commandments that told us we were wrong. And when we erred, then the Levitical priests were there to make a covering for sins, but it wasn't a removal of sins. That didn't come until the person of Jesus Christ. That is why John the Baptist, when he spotted Jesus at the Jordan River that day, said in front of his Jew Jewish audience, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And the listening Jew went, What? You mean covers my sins temporarily for a time? No. Takes away the sins of the world. You see, by the works of the law and the Levitical priesthood and their sacrifices being part of the law, no flesh could be justified, declared innocent and righteous. That only comes through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The law could not accomplish it. Therefore, in light of who Jesus is, it was weak 
and useless. It was fine and good. It was designed by God, but it's incomplete without the person of Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus do we experience salvation in three tenses. That we have been justified, past tense. That we are being sanctified, present active tense. And that we will be glorified. All of that is experienced in the person of Jesus Christ. And nothing else could accomplish that. So what else are you pursuing? And why are you pursuing it? Riches isn't going to do that for you. Position? Fame? Reputation? Little releases in the flesh, stimulants, they're not going to do it for you. The person of Jesus Christ. There was no power in that former system to overcome. The law told you what to do. It gave you no power to do it. In the new covenant, God's commandments are his enablements. Because we have been given the promise of the Father, the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And so now we have power to live righteously by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses And the power of sin has been broken in our lives. Romans chapter 6, the power structure of sin has been broken in our lives. So we have been set free. We have been changed and transformed. The law can only identify that someone was a sinner. It could just identify you're a sinner, you're wrong. It had no power to change you. But the gospel changes us. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. He's telling them, listen, people, you've been changed by Jesus Christ. Don't go back to the old coping mechanisms. Don't go back to the old things. You don't need them anymore. You're more than an overcomer. You're more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. You can live victoriously in him and with him and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the last verse we look at, we already read it, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Nobody was justified. And on the other hand, there is a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is a better hope. He's a better way. He's better than the former things. Render them inoperative. He's better. Notice what it says we're to do. This is the last thing I'm going to tell you. This is we're to draw near to him. There's a secret. Being close to Jesus. I'm telling you, it's a secret. Shh. That's a secret. Just draw near to Jesus. Remember in the previous chapter, chapter 6, he was called the forerunner who went into the Holy of Holies for us. Remember that picture of the big boat? We talked about harbors in the ancient Mediterranean and how on the beach they would fasten a giant rock. They would make it stationary and immovable. A giant rock with a hole through it. And that was inside the harbor and it was called the anchor. And on a calm day when everything was cool, a giant ship could come into port with its sails open and sail right up to that thing and cast a line around it and be safe and secure. But that wasn't the case in times of difficulty. And these Hebrew Christians were experiencing difficulty and so will we. In the time of difficulty, that boat with all its sails found that the wind was often contrary and that the waves were working against it and that the circumstances were overwhelming and so it wasn't able to get to the anchor. It wasn't able to get to the harbor. And so in that culture, in that time, what would they do? They would send out a little boat. It was called the forerunner. 
And that little boat would paddle out of the big boat and with manpower go against the difficulty, against the grain, against the circumstances, into the harbor and fasten on to that anchor. And then the people on the boat would have the other end of the line that was fastened onto the anchor, the immovable rock by the forerunner. And all those guys had to do on that boat now is just hand over hand, draw near. Just hand over hand, draw near. And the truth of Jesus Christ is that he's gone into the heavenlies for us. That he has gone into the holy of holies on our behalf. And his intent is that we go with him. All we got to do is hold on and draw near. Just hold on and draw near. Jesus is already there. He's already there. Just hold on and he'll get you there. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these beautiful truths, Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and appropriate these things to our lives. Lord, you alone know what's going on in our hearts. You know our fears and our difficulties and our compromises. We're asking the Holy Spirit you would gently but thoroughly deal with us. Help us to enter boldly before the throne of grace that we might find help in the time of need. Reveal hidden coping mechanisms in our heart. Hidden sins, the old things, the former things that need to be inoperative. Show us, Lord, what we're clinging to when we ought to be clinging to you. And do a work in us, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would come and cause Jesus to be enthroned in our hearts and in our minds. A lot of us are facing a brand new year, a brand new circumstances, a fresh season. We want to be near to you, Lord. We want to cling to you. We want to experience you as an all-sufficient one who is good and merciful, a faithful high priest. Help us to experience you in that way, Lord. Teach us to repent this day of those silly little things. Brothers and sisters, prayer team is up here to your left if you need help. Communion is up here. You can celebrate the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Proclaim his coming. And the carpets are here if you want to kneel or get on your face before him.